You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Competition, rejection, late hours and burnout, collegiality, discoveries, research, and teaching. A career in academia comes with a lot of components, some good and some not so good. Welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. In this episode, we're talking about topics that might seem like they're on the periphery of the core elements of an academic career, but they're pretty crucial to your credibility among colleagues and your sense of well-being. Coming up, we'll talk about the art of good presentations with Brian Block, a presentation and communication expert. But first, we'll explore a higher education career from an LGBTQ perspective. Ray Crossman is the president of Adler University in Chicago, a private institution specializing in mental health counseling and therapy. Ray shares his experiences of being an out president and how he's learned to just be himself on the job, warts and all. I'll also ask his advice on finding a mentor and upskilling to meet the job. And he explains how university's mission statements give subtle cues to LGBTQ academics on how supported they would feel on your campus. Ray, thank you so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education Podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, yeah. Happy to be here. You have described yourself as a social justice advocate, an educator, and a psychologist. And in 2017, you came out as HIV positive, which is a pretty bold move for anybody, I think, but especially for somebody who has such a, a public job. What was your decision-making process behind that? I appreciate the question as much as I appreciate being here, Sarah. Uh, and, um, you know, I was I was kind of always out since the, you know, since the 80s and 90s uh, to friends and family as someone living with HIV. Um, but it was, you know, I was out and loud about the gay at work, but not about HIV. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when the board hired me into the presidency of Adler, um, I don't know whether or not they would have hired me if they known, but I didn't give them a chance because I didn't talk about it, right? I was silent. So that changed for me when Trump was elected um, in 2016. And I started having this eerie feeling of deja vu that it was reminding me of the 80s and I couldn't put my finger on it right away. And then I wondered, you know, whether... um, how I was feeling in the 80s as somebody who was, uh, you know, mad and sad and scared uh, because we were abandoned by the state. I mean, the, the then president in this country, the actor, uh, Reagan, he wouldn't say the word AIDS. And that meant we were cut off from recognition, we drugs that we needed, um, you know, and, and it incited hate speech and other kinds of oppression. And I just got wondering, like, you know, if that was similar to how in 2016, um, 2017, how women, you know, how Muslims, how people who are immigrants, people who look like immigrants, you know, could be feeling, you know, um, sad and mad and scared. And um, because the the new president, uh, the actor, Trump, Uh, was saying all kinds of incendiary words that were causing violence towards those folks. Um, 
And so I realized that the asset that I had, and I didn't think of it as an asset um, in, in quite the same way that I do now of living with HIV was something that I could share and talk about. Um, because we won a lot of victories in the 80s. You know, we learned some lessons. There were hard-won lessons. I mean, we didn't solve AIDS, and there were many populations, you know, you know, that weren't white gay men who we didn't address their experience with, with HIV. But we, we definitely moved the ball forward um, with, um, you know, directed community action. So I felt like I had something to share and to talk about. And it was, uh, you know, well-received in the university, well-received outside the university. Um, and I've continued to talk about the 80s as a time, uh, you know, where I learned how to be or try to be a social justice advocate um, and um, how that might shape us continuing to fight those battles and right injustices moving forward. Tell me a little bit more about the response. I mean, you said that if the board had known that you were HIV positive, you probably wouldn't have got the job that you have, the, the job of presidency in 2003. What has been the response from the academic community well, maybe, maybe not, you know, so I didn't give that board in 2003 a chance, right, you know, to, to, to opine. And 2003 was a different era, right, um, you know, but, um, but you know, I mean, I, I, I work for the board. So in 2016, I made sure that, um, you know, that I talked to the board very carefully about doing this, you know, like, you know, what would it, what could it mean for the university, uh, you know, what are there downsides about doing this? And ultimately, we decided together that there was nothing but upsides because for us, um, Adler University is a political institution. What I mean by that is that we stand for something. Alfred Adler was the first community psychologist, the first guy to write about social determinants of health in 1898. You know, he expected practitioners to be advocates for societal change at a time when people weren't really putting those words together. So me doing that as the leader of this institution was very congruent with our frame and with our mission um, and what we, you know, prepare our students to do. Um, so that's how the decision was made. That was, I think, was part of it being well-received. Um, and, you know, I think that um, a, a lot of folks took what they decided to take from uh, watching me do that. I mean, some people thought about it as, um, you know, a way to be a leader and be genuine and real. Um, some people thought about it uh, as a way um, that leaders um, could be advocates and could, like, not play it safe, you know. So, um, you know, th th those are the reactions that I got that were very gratifying, you know, um, because for me it just felt like sort of a a natural culmination of having an experience that started around about 85 to just finally like realize that it was time to be out with it. <laughs> like, um, mm. but, um, uh, but, but, but for others, you know, they seem to find, uh, uh, different lessons in it. Um, mm. and that felt fantastic. We hear a lot about, bring your whole self, be your true self. Don't, don't be afraid to, to show your true self. Because we're talking about careers on this episode of the podcast, 
Are there any le- lessons that you think uh, can be imparted to people who are in the beginning stages of their careers or perhaps in lower positions than you about not being afraid to bring your whole self to your work? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I very much uh, agree with um, Brené Brown and, you know, what's um, what meant what, what, what she and many others are talking about in terms of vulnerable leadership. Um, and, um, you know, I noticed very early in my presidency that things went better when I talked about my process openly, you know, um, when um, transparent is such an overused word right now. But, you know, there, there's something to that, that, that when I was clear about where I was coming from and higher ed presidencies aren't designed to reward um, authenticity and vulnerability in general. Um, uh, but I've realized um, over time that uh, vulnerable leadership is not just an antidote to my experience growing up queer, but it empowers me as a leader. And um, I've noticed since I started um, being clearer about the HIV um, that my, my queer intuition is sharper uh, what I mean about that is queer people see around corners because of how we were brought up looking for emergency and threat and bullying. Uh, you know, that that's sharper, that, you know, I listen better. I mean, I just think that, um, you know, now that I'm not uh, keeping that secret, um, that that secret was weighing on me more than I realized and taking away my power as a leader. And I actually think that this is something... Um, that as an old guy talking about this, um, I'm 58, um, that I feel a little silly talking about because the the younger generation knows this better than my generation knows it, I think, um, and they're getting it better. But um, the more intentional you are about doing this, I think, um, the better your performance. I agree with you that it it seems like the younger generation gets this more, but they're still existing in a world where there's racism and a lot of structures that aren't set up necessarily to support all kinds of people and marginalized groups, whether that's gender, sex, race, class, whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I agree with you that, that people kind of get this more, but they're still going against the stream in a lot of ways. Yeah, the more historically disadvantaged you are, the harder it is to really walk in this way, even though, you know, that the, 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 the cultural narrative might say it's so. But it's easier for someone who carries a lot of the categories that I carry within my intersexuality, like being white and having resources and being male, um, to say, be yourself, um, you know. So, yeah. so there really is value about talking about this, uh, especially for um, people who are structurally and historically disadvantaged. We've mentioned this a little bit, but this year will mark the 20th year of your presidency at Adler University. If you had to categorize your career into phases, what would they be? So I think early, um, like like through my education, including graduate school, um, I was really trying to figure out my deal. Um, you know, growing up as a uh, a gay man with HIV in New York City, um, I like bounced around into different lines of study, business, fine arts. I settled into psychology because I thought that psychology would help me understand and address oppression. Um, And that's why I ended up pursuing my doctorate in clinical psychology. Turns out 
that that's not really what psychology was about, especially at the time. Um, but, but, you know, so that, that whole part of, I'd say my first phase was that whole exploration um, and making a lot of um, um, turns without a lot of guidance, you know, um, um, until I did a better job in picking mentors, which started to happen for me and, you know, when I became a faculty member. So um, I, you know, I, 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 I studied to be a family therapist, and I got a job as um, you know a practitioner faculty in an independent psychology school and preparing psychologists. Um, I did a lot of practice and program building um, outside of that job consultation, um, and that, that's second phase. If we're you know so that that I thought I was going to do that for the rest of my life, um, and love doing it, um, love teaching. Um, loved the variety in my work portfolio. Um, I mean, there was just like nothing not to like about it. Um, and then everything got upended by uh, getting a call from um, an independent psychology school um, in Hawaii. They were looking for someone to lead their campus. Um, and they were interested in me because my scholarship is in diversity and that's what the campus was focused on. But I wasn't interested in being an administrator at all. Didn't want to be an evil administrator. So, um, and it was pretty easy to say no because my partner was going through cancer at the time. So we weren't going to move away from his doctors. And then a year later, he lives. He wasn't supposed to live. And they called back, did gone through searches, didn't have a leader yet. And um, we were in that post-cancer glow and just decided to take the interview. And even with that terrible attitude, I got the gig and... Much to my surprise, I found out that I loved doing this kind of work and I had a talent for it. Um, you know, my preparation as a psychologist, um, how I'm wired. Um, and then I had to line up a lot of other skills um, that I didn't have, um, you know, as a, as a teacher and as an academic and as a shrink um, in order to be successful. But I, I just found, like, when we were able to do things like change um, – you know, who the institution was teaching and how. That was big change, you know, and it led to health com- outcomes in the islands that were way beyond what I expected to be able to um, have an influence on in my career. So that led to eventually getting a call from Adler and, you know, moving into a bigger administrative role um, and continuing through many phases of, you know, a presidency here where we grew from. 200 to 2,000 students um, across my time here, but, and their phases within that. But I'd say, like, this whole, like, accidental leadership, administrative path I ended up on only happened because of my, you know, then partner's cancer. So. Hmm. I, I spoke with someone about this uh, last week, um, talking about academic careers, and she said one thing that people don't realize is it's, it's not linear. You don't necessarily start out thinking like, right, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to I'm going to be a postdoc for a while and then I'm going to get tenure and then I'm going to do this and then I'm just going to teach and research for the rest of my life. That it's 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 never kind of what you expect it to be and just maybe kind of go along for the ride a little bit more. Absolutely. So like that's what I have tried to do since after being so greatly surprised and going a direction I didn't expect to go at all. um, I um you know, I, I check out windows and doorways more than I did previously um, because I 
find that, uh, you know, as I go along, I realize how much I don't know. And if you're paying attention, you learn things you didn't expect to. One follow-up question on that. Whenever you said that you were in Hawaii and you had to really upskill and learn so much to kind of fit into the role, how did you do that? You know, I picked mentors very carefully. Like, I didn't know how to read a budget. Um, I didn't know um, how to read a balance sheet. Um, I knew uh, something about people as a psychologist, but I, I didn't understand management principles. Um, so I sought people out who knew those things. In, in retrospect, I, can't, I, I, I ran that campus on an Excel spreadsheet, you know, which I didn't even know how to use Excel, right? So, and, and, I, and I don't now, right? Because I'm at a bigger place, but just the, the things that I had to very aggressively figure out how to do um, um, in order to be successful as a leader uh, continued over time. Um, you know, when I um, got to Chicago, um, to Adler, um, I realized, you know, with a board and a bigger institution that I would need, um, a lot more skills uh, than I had at the time. And so, um, I found this brilliant coach, business coach, um, who, you know, was greatly my senior. She'd forgotten things that I didn't know yet. And, um, you know, she's one of the first people to, um, uh, women to work in the corporate sector, right, in the 80s herself. So we, we, were, we were like spirits in that regard. But she, she took me under her wing and just, like, taught me a whole way of thinking about outcomes and, you know, um, how to think about organizations um, and their development that, that I had no idea um, about mm. previously. All right, Ray, we're going to move into some rapid-fire responses. Um, this is what I'm calling the rapid-fire advice session. Okay. <laughs> career <laughs> advice, ca rapid-fire career advice session. Here we go. Um, you've mentioned mentors a lot. What is your advice on how to pick a good mentor? How to pick a good mentor or supervisor. So um, I have always found, like, when I'm looking for a mentor, approaching somebody and being very upfront and basically saying, I mean, use a few more words, I want to be you. <laughs> um, flattery. Um, we need some flattery initially. Well, no, just clarity. Like, so I, I wouldn't necessarily be cloying, but, but like, I think that when you approach somebody and say, you know, show me something, almost nobody says no to that. Um, you know, and if you propose a way for them to do it, that's doable, like for me, like I approached another president and I said, you know, let's have breakfast once a month, you know, um, and you know, he agreed. I mean, like people don't, uh, yeah, they respond to flattery, but they also respond to like something that's doable for them. Um, and, you know, successful people want to pass along about how to be successful. So, And were those, um, were those in your history of mentors, were those all people that you didn't know? Was it kind of just like cold calling them, just reaching out to them? Many of them were cold calls. Absolutely. So that's, that's why I'm saying have the, have the courage to walk up to a stranger and, um, and they, they'll be surprised. They won't say no. Okay, next question. Um, you talked about becoming an evil administrator. What advice would you give to someone who's considering jumping that divide between faculty and administration and going over to, to either side? Yeah, so, I mean, 
my journey from being a faculty member to being an administrator required new skill sets that I really had to go after and find other people um, to show me how to, you know, read a budget. Um, But also it's the overall mindset. I mean, like, so for, I, I think a big problem that the academy has is we don't realize that to go from being a faculty member to a supervisor requires a, requires a change in mindset and a lot of support. You know, find those supports. Uh, you know, just because you're successful in teaching a class or leading a department doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to um, have that same success in the next steps. Um, make sure you're supported to do that. And is there a um, social question there as well in terms of changing your mindset? If you've always been on the faculty side and you've seen administration as a bit evil, but now you're going to work for the evil, I don't know, is there something that you need to see in terms of how you work with your new colleagues or perhaps how you then approach your former colleagues who might now see you in more of an evil light? (laughs) Yes, I mean, I I, I think that... Um, the, the fundamentally, you have to be interested in getting something done as an administrator. Um, and some people are more comfortable in analysis and critique than doing things. So I think you have an early judgment to make about, like, which do you want to do? Um, you know, do you, do you want to create new knowledge and build um, narratives and understanding, um, which is important to being every aspect of being human and eventually making things happen. Um, uh, Administrators have to have um, an additional chip and a real fire and desire to like in this country, we say get her done. I mean, just like (laughs) outcomes. Um, And um, if you're, if you're not passionate about that, then um, you may not want to try to make yourself passionate about that. Okay, final question. What advice do you have for salary negotiations? So, um, you know, when I was a faculty member and even for subsequent jobs, um, salaries were proposed um, and they were based on benchmarks. Um, You know, like at Adler, all of our salaries are benchmarked by an external firm, um, you know, for equity purposes and, you know, and and coherence of what our compensation philosophy is. So for me, there's been little negotiation of salaries. And oftentimes when that's a salary, um, how how salaries are determined within an organization, there isn't a lot of room for negotiation, but uh, we've entered into a different world right now. Um, and, And so I think it's really key for somebody who's trying to make sure that they're getting the right salary, right compensation package to know what it's being proposed from, you know? So where, where, you know, what is the band for this position? You know, am I being offered um, something that's close to the median or in the upper band? Is it, is it congruent with my um, experience? I mean, I I think the more that you can know about that um, and the more transparent an organization is about that, um, you know, the more effective you're going to be in the, probably happier you'll be in an organization that really is being uh, guided by rules and principles. Okay, so if there's no room for negotiation, really, it's just perhaps going in with 
a bit more understanding of where you sit if it is a banded thing, but then also maybe playing around with whatever benefits they might be able to offer if there is no room for more money in a salary. But for example, if you are relocating, what sort of package does that look like? Or if you have a family or spouses that are coming with you? Absolutely. So, and, and, and your, your, the institution that you're going to may or may not have flexibility in how that um, kind of benefit is administered. But it is a whole new world in this regard, at least in the United States. I don't... Post-pandemic, you mean? Uh, no, just the power that, um, uh, that prospective employees um, have now okay. um, to demand what they want because it's a tight labor market. Um, yeah. You know, um, uh, higher ed, you know, a lot of people are leaving higher ed um, in the States. Um, it's not quite the preferred employer that it has been historically. Um, but, um, you know, higher ed uh, needs a workforce to move forward, even though, um, you know, enrollments overall in the United States at least are declining because of changes in demographics. So, um, we still need a workforce uh, badly, and it's hard to find uh, good faculty and good staff. So you have a lot of power as a prospective uh, mm-hmm. staff member to um, to investigate what additional benefits um, there might be um, or negotiate what anything, your start time, conditions. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, just looking at this from a an institution's perspective and, and the people who are out there looking for people. And there was a Q&A in um, a publication called Insight into Diversity, of which you were a part of as well. Um, but one of your colleagues, Richard Heldobler, uh, who's the president of William Patterson University, said that there are always job descriptions that people will forward you. And when you read the mission of the institution, you know they're not going to hire you. I sort of stayed away from those and ended up in places that were very affirming and great at embracing not only my talents, but who I am as a person. And that really struck me that even by him reading a job description, he knew that he would not be accepted there as a whole person being from the LGBTQ community and perhaps other things. He doesn't go into to what he means by his embracing all of his talents and everything. I just wonder, is is that an impression that you've had from an institution's um, job ad? And what sort of advice would you have for institutions to just be more aware of those subtleties that might come out in their job ads that they aren't even aware of? Yeah, I think Rich is right. So um, I, I believe at a fundamental level, you can tell um, a lot by an institution by what's mentioned and not mentioned in their mission statement. In, in, in higher ed, we put a lot of diversity words in our higher in, in, in our mission statements, but you can see the ones that are robotically put together versus the ones that are um, more sincerely put together um, in terms of you know what the work of the university or college is really going to look like. So um, that's that's based on the history and culture of the institution, and I think that that's what Rich is talking about. You may not see it in the job ad itself, um, but um, once you start talking to a search consultant, at least for a presidential search, um, you know, how they ask about your family or don't ask about your family, um, you know, um, what, what the day itself is put together, whether or not you're, whether or not you're invited to bring your um, your significant other to the interview process. For presidents, the partner's always involved. 
you you get a feel for that pretty quickly as you start to talk to people within an institution um, as to whether or not uh, you really have a shot at the job or you're going to be ruled out right away or worse, um, you're going to be brought along as a diversity candidate but never really ultimately get the job. I say worse because I, I have a lot of... Uh, uh, a, a lot of my colleagues have had that experience and that just feels awful. I'm going to press you a little bit on the mission statement thing because you said sometimes they can sound robotic and then other times you can just tell. Do you have any specific examples or, or, or wording or even if you can give us just a bit more information about how you might be able to tell if a mission statement sounds robotic versus authentic? You know, I, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying that something along the lines of we prepare people to participate in a um, global diverse world. Absolutely nothing wrong. Um, but, but look at the words around that, look at the values, um, because that's not necessarily you know, meaningful in, in and of itself. Um, for, for, for me, if I was in a job search situation and since um, you know, it's important to me to be at an institution um, that is got a particular political valence and is looking um, to um, advance a more just society, which we try to do at Adler, I'm going to be looking something for something in the mission statement about advancing social justice, you know, either with those words or without those words. In your tenure, you have co-founded the LGBTQ Leaders in Higher Education Group. You co-founded that in 2010. And you've also just come out of a, with a book that you've edited on Johns Hopkins Press called LGBTQ Leadership in Higher Education. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book and maybe the organization and if there's any overlap there? Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, yeah, so the organization is going strong. It started off with um, nine out presidents meeting in 2010. There were not too many of us back then. Um, and um, and at, at this point, the organization is over 100 presidents. Um, a third of which are retired because there's been some time since 2010 and tenure in these jobs is often short. Uh, Two thirds, I think, about um, of the current membership are active presidents, both retired and um, currently serving presidents are members and participate in part because we're looking to um, continue to, you know, break the pink glass ceiling um, and, um, you know, at all levels of the academy, um, especially um, especially in the top leadership positions, because that's often in a university where you get right up until the point where the board is making the hire and the board doesn't make that hire because boards are old fashioned. Right. So so the organization has worked with search firms, worked with um, organizations for boards in order to speak to that as well as probably the most important thing the organization has done is had leadership institutes for people at all levels of of the academy. The first was at Adler University in 2015. Um, The next is going to be in October at um, Southern Connecticut State University. Um, So, um, and the organization too is going through a change right now that the organization is going to be called Leaders in Higher Education um, so that it isn't a president's club. Um, okay, so, so it's still it's yeah. still focusing on LGBTQ academics and faculty, 
but more on just kind of leaders rather than just president. So it could be aspiring leaders or it could be more kind of lower down the rank, but still leaders within institution. Right. The, the, the organization is working out right now how to make it more inclusive across different levels of the academy. And is that what the essays in the book that you edited speak to as well? So the, the book, um, you know, was it, it's the first book on this subject in higher ed, much to my surprise, you know, about and basically what we speak to is why we believe that queer leadership matters and whether or not, you know, being a gay leader it gives you a superpower or, you know, whether or not it's a hindrance or whether or not it's just another attribute of experienced leaders. Um, and so um, um, we brought together 15 college and university presidents, um, some serving, some retired. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of intersectionality going on within the authors. Um, in, in the United States, most presidents are still white men. We worked against that in this book by... I think most of the authors are women and a quarter are people of color. Um, but, but what we're all speaking to, and we all have different perspectives on this, um, you know, I believe that being queer is a superpower. It lets me do some things um, that actually, you know, women and people of color leaders have also written about, like your experiences as a, um, a person growing up gay makes me interested in inclusion in a different way. And if there's like a way to do something that hasn't been fully explored uh, that might lead to innovation, I'm the first one who wants to hear about it. And that's because of my childhood, right? So, and we hit all kinds of subjects uh, related to leadership, everything from um, intersectionality, uh, the relationship to feminism, um, mentoring, self-care, um, what to do if you want a presidency yourself, um, the future. I mean, the exciting thing about this book is we're all old. I'm among the youngest of the authors, uh, but I'm old too. What we're also doing, I think, is archiving a moment that is happening right now about the changes in leadership and the need for more diverse leadership in order to lead our institutions and uh, the world forward. Ray, thank you very much for that. Thank you, sir. Wonderful to speak with you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Brian Block began his career as a lecturer in economics, but about 20 years ago, he became a freelance English and presentation skills teacher. He's still associated with the university of helping students and academics alike hone the use of voice, body language, and English pronunciation. He'll tell us what some of the worst defenses are in public speaking and how to overcome them. He'll also give a conclusive answer on how to pronounce one of London's most difficult-to-say tube stations. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Times Higher Education podcast. Uh, could you start out just telling us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yes, certainly. I started off my career as a business academic, as economics and business, and I also learned German as a kind of hobby and which became a bit more serious over time. And as a result, I moved to Germany and my career 
evolved in terms of my own interests and what people wanted here and needed. And this then emerged as a lot of academic editing, which is my main activity, as well as courses on presenting and on academic English at different levels and for different people. Uh, would it be fair to say that you have a bit of a, a specialism in helping non-native English speakers in their pronunciation skills and their presentation skills specifically? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what it's about. It's also about general presentation skills, which would apply to native and non-native speakers. But clearly, the, the, there's an enormous need, uh, as I wrote in my article, uh, for pronunciation and other errors. But at the same time, there are these presentation skills which really have nothing to do with the use of the language. Hmm. And that article is for one that you wrote recently for Times Higher Education that I'll link to in the notes for this episode. Correct. Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit, let's, let's start with the bad before we move on to the good. What are some of the worst offenses you have seen English and indeed non-native English speakers continuously make whenever you're doing this work on their presentations? Well, let's start then with the general points. There are certain things that people tend to do a lot. And one of them is the, is the body language, in particular, the use of hands or the misuse of hands. Um, a lot of people just have their hands too, too often there and moving around, often in ways that have got nothing to do with what they're actually saying. They don't really emphasize anything. Also, there are issues with eye contact, voice. Is, it's so simple to, to, to get some of those things right as well, just talking too fast or too slow, swallowing your words, not pronouncing them clearly enough, quite apart from any errors. And the introduction and the conclusion are also areas where people can be very weak. It's really easy for people to fall into the trap of simply not introducing something very convincingly or interestingly, or failing to conclude in a meaningful way, either by introducing something new at the end or simply repeating what they've said before. Those are general problems. With the language, I have noticed over the years that most non-native speakers make, even in a quarter of an hour presentation, up to, up to 15 or, or even more pronunciation errors. And some of these are repeated and that is the real problem. If you say something wrong once, it's not so terrible. But if, if it's again and again and again, then it really is. In fact, only the other night I was watching a DVD and somebody was making all sorts of presentation errors and pronounced the word um, stalker as stalker. And this was right the way through. I mean, that's just one out of really hundreds of examples. With the language, otherwise, there are errors with word order, the wrong word choice. Sometimes it's not totally wrong, but it's just not the best word. Gerunds, you know, the ing form are very difficult for non-native speakers. Prepositions and, of course, simple linguistic clarity. It is very often the case that there's some sentences in the presentation that just aren't clear and need to be reformulated. Uh, I taught English in Spain for a number of years and I learned Spanish, so I definitely understand the pitfalls that can come when you mispronounce a word and it just kind of gets ingrained into your brain and that's just how you will 
forever pronounce it unless you really have that laser focus on correcting yes. it. And equally, I've I've sat through many presentations at conferences and from former students. And once someone says the wrong word, it, that's just how they say it. And, it. and it kind of slips up all the time. And it perhaps eats into the credibility of what they're saying. Do you have any specific advice that you would pass on or in the work that you do? How do you help people work on their pronunciation to kind of decode that, that ingrained brain problem of mispronouncing specific words? Yes, it's certainly you're quite right. Um, it's very difficult to get it out of the brain when it's in there in, in the wrong way. But one has to simply work on it. First of all, people really should check on, on the names. Names are one of the most common things. And so if you just check all of the names, in, indeed, only yesterday, I heard on, on German radio somebody talking about Mary LeBone Station twice. And that, that one is difficult even for native speakers. Yeah, <laughs> As an American in London, that one is very difficult. Precisely, and one finds that particular one on various podcasts or um, um, videos on, on YouTube as well. But if one, if one listens to CDs or, or watches films in the native language, but, but concentrating quite consciously on, on the use of the language, there are also lots of books available with CDs and uh, phonetic spelling. They're quite useful and some of them actually point out the common words that, uh, words that are, are so often mispronounced. So devoting a bit of time to books like that or CDs is also a help. But I think the main piece of advice is that there simply isn't a substitute for a rehearsal with a suitably qualified native speaker. In the end, you don't know what you don't know. And two heads simply are better than one. And the, for, for important presentations, I would advise anybody to make sure that a native speaker listens to it at least once. So there are lots of things you can do to work on it if one takes the time and the trouble. And beyond the pronunciation, you mentioned a few things there in terms of word order and preposition and what I used to call false friends, which is yes. uh, translating things that might work in your native language or that sound similar to words in English but actually don't have the same meaning. Is rehearsing, is that, would that be helpful to kind of filter all of those things out as well? Oh, absolutely. The, the exact same thing applies as with the pronunciation. The, the errors, it, 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 in fact, almost more so than the pronunciation. You don't know what, what you don't know. And there, there isn't really any substitute there for having somebody help you work them out. I think sometimes people would, would have certain things that they are not sure about and they could then ask somebody specifically but it is really important to rehearse and indeed one of the various books I have on the subject of presentation I noted the other day had the its final um, chapter and the, the heading indeed was rehearse 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 and they also drew attention to various famous speakers like Churchill and, and certain others who, even though they are, were so well-established and indeed native speakers, they, they never lost track of the need to practice things until they are as perfect as you can get them. Hmm. And just for our listeners who, who don't know the correct pronunciation of that tube station in London, can you say the correct pronunciation for us? <laughs> Marlebone. That also reminds me, by the way, with pronunciation, it's, it's a field of its own, and there are some 
words that one can say slightly wrongly and they don't really matter. But there are others that, that really do. In fact, I've got a couple of examples I found to go through with you now um, that aren't in my article. In fact, I have a list of many, many of these. So we, we could be on this uh, interview for a long time with, with uh, out running out of wrong words. For example, one of my students talked about the shop ratio. Now, fortunately, I happen to know that it's actually the sharp ratio. And he was quite amused when I pointed this out. And then somebody said once that these people were progermen. Now, it's also difficult to figure that one out, but it, it turned out he meant pro-German. Oh, wow. And then, seeing that you are in England, somebody um, on the radio referred to a certain professor as having been at Durham University for several years. Yeah, is Durham. Yeah. It's a bad one. Mm. Which even, even, for example, Birmingham... In the U.S., we also have a Birmingham in Alabama. So there are slight differences in terms of accents and kind of local context for certain words. Absolutely. There's, there are some words which one does simply say differently in, in America. In fact, in, with you and me here, you say presentation and I say presentation. Those are regional differences. But it's important that to, to accept and understand that some words are just plain wrong and they, they really do not sound good. Mm, and yes, they wouldn't be correct in any regional context. No, no, precise. Mm. So beyond um, pronunciation, you, you also mentioned in the beginning about how important voice and body language is. Can you tell us any sort of advice native speakers or non-native speakers might be able to incorporate whenever they're thinking about presentations? Yes, certainly in terms of voice, Again, one really has to, one can record oneself. How, how useful that would be is um, open to debate. But I have noticed a lot of the time that I have to ask students to talk a bit softer or, or not, or more commonly, uh, slower. People get nervous and they just talk too fast. And it's very easy for somebody to pick that up. I mean, some of these issues, you know, some uh, your friends or your family could, could actually point you in the right direction. Other things are certainly more sophisticated or, or more difficult to pick up. With body language, for example, it, it really is a whole field of its own. I mean, some of the things are really quite obvious. Like if, you know, if somebody keeps doing things like this all the time and in particular when it as I've said it, it has no bearing on on what you're saying it, it doesn't emphasize anything it's really just a habit but there are there are also far more subtle things such as smiling uh, people don't realize how important it is to smile and there are also different kinds of smile some of them are more genuine than others there are also things that can can give away what you really feel or, or what you think. For, for example, uh, putting your hand like this uh, if you talk may, it doesn't have to be, maybe an indication that you're concealing something or, or that you're not being honest. And I, one needs to be aware of this. And the, 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 the use of one's entire body actually matters. If you are going to a job interview, for example, which is one of the most fundamentally important presentations that people make, the way you walk into the room, the way you stand, the way you sit, the angle of the legs, the, the angle of the feet, the position of the feet. It really is 
it's a language. It's, a body language is not just a few things. I, I, in fact, I've always been fascinated by it, and I have quite a library of books on the subject now. And really, al almost every part of the body, including the way one dresses, has an impact on the way one is perceived and perhaps the way one feels about oneself as well. I wonder if um, during the pandemic and now post-pandemic, how we've, you and I are speaking on Zoom right now, and I imagine lots of job interviews and presentations still happen in Zoom. Was there any shift in your advice that you gave to people or how you saw presentation skills kind of evolving in this more kind of rectangular block that people's heads are sitting in? Oh, absolutely. There, there is a, a small literature that's already in, evolved on presenting online. In fact, prior to the pandemic, there, there were already books or articles on, on presenting online. But of course, it burdened enormously in the pandemic. What I found with my own students is that what was very important is to be seen as you and I are now for part of the presentation, just, just the face, just to talk. And one shouldn't have the, let the slides dominate. And because, it, you know, if, if one's presenting in person, you know, the slides are there, you're also there, you're all, all there in, in, in one place and everything can be seen. But when you're presenting online, you only have the little head on the side, if anything. And it's important to, to get away then from the slides and be seen as we are here for part of the time. There are also various issues um, about the lighting, that it shouldn't be, for example, from below, which can, can look kind of creepy. And if, if, if all of you can be seen, one needs to be um, sitting correctly, not slumping in the chair. And then the, the eye contact, um, one needs to also look at the cameras. It's sometimes quite difficult to do that if one's looking at the notes as well. But, but certainly, there's a, there are a lot of similarities. And I have noticed, in fact, that the one German book that I bought recently on presenting online, a lot of it is actually general and not really just about online. But there are certain specific things that uh, really do change. And I would mention one rather nice presentation at the in the early days of the pandemic, when one of the um, young ladies actually decided not to use slides at all and had little um, like notices, you know, something like this, with things just written on them. Oh, so um, holding so up was, pieces of paper so that yes, people can see it on yes, the camera. It, it was rather nice. It was something a bit different, and it came across very well. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of um, bringing some, some novelty into a Zoom conversation or a, a Teams presentation where people can often get quite fatigued and um, get quite bored perhaps more easily than they would if it were a live presentation. Yes, exactly. Um, you've mentioned a, a job interview and whenever we think about um, academic presentations, I often think about conferences or disciplinary uh, events where people will go and present their research or a paper or, or give a talk. What sorts of other um, areas of scholarship or context do you think uh, improved and better presentation skills could serve academics? Well, the, the most important one is actually teaching. Oh, yeah. The teaching is itself a presentation. In fact, um, one, it, it's not such an obvious point, but I've, I've certainly noticed this here, that 
uh, quite a lot of the German professors and lecturers, uh, perhaps um, not as many as should, uh, do lecture in English. And the, the same presentation issues, the general ones apply, but also the linguistic ones. And I really believe that any professor or lecturer teaching in a, in, in a, in a language other than his or her native one should at least have some sort of a check for half an hour, an hour at minimum, perhaps more if necessary, to make sure that the main terms and the main concepts are correct. I mean, nothing could be worse than giving your entire course with, what, with core concepts that are wrong. I can give you a very good example. I had, a, in fact, a Zoom session with um, somebody I'd been working with, and his topic was about financial regulation. And he pronounced the word as regulation. Mm. And several times. Now, we were actually just discussing some finer points of his article. So we weren't even really there to discuss the pronunciation, but this was really fundamental. Had he gone to a conference prior to this talk that we had, he would have said the word, the most important word in, in, in his entire dissertation and the presentation wrong right through. And that it's precisely this that you want to avoid. So for teachers, but also I think any encounter with colleagues or students is a sort of a presentation. Even if you have a, just a small seminar group or even at a conference, if you have a discussion with colleagues in the tea room or, or for lunch, you're also a little bit on display. And the, the body language, the English in all its various aspects is, is also important. So I think these skills apply in, in almost any context where there is contact. I, just as you were speaking, I was thinking about my own experiences of, of giving presentations or speaking, public speaking. And what happens sometimes is you hear yourself speaking quite quickly or a bit of a quiver in your voice or a mispronunciation of a word. And then as you're speaking, your inner thoughts start kind of whizzing and you get even more nervous and just really focus on a mistake that you've made or how people are perceiving you. Basically, you start to overthink it. Do you have any advice for people of how to kind of calm down that inner critic a little bit and just kind of let it flow, even if you do hear yourself say regulation or, or some sort of other thing that you yes. didn't mean to say? Well, of course, you're touching here on the whole issue of nerves. Yeah. And indeed, nerves are extremely important. And I was reading just the other day that somebody uh, in, in one of the books that this person said, whenever he mentions the, the, the concept of nerves, people um, pay, pay particular attention. Indeed, I've noticed with some of my students that their, their voices tremble if they're nervous, or, the, or indeed some of these um, body language errors emerge when, when people are nervous. Dealing with nerves is, is quite difficult. If you have a tendency to be nervous, then it's not easy to eradicate it, but, but the, I mean, the obvious point is that the better prepared you are, the less nervous you're likely to be. There are all, all sorts of techniques, such as sort of breathing techniques or, or visualization, or sort of picturing the audience in certain ways, which um, as if having funny masks on and things like this, that may sound silly, but they may work for people. And in, indeed, practice 
and experience. Also, if you can get to meet the people before the event, it helps as well. But in the, in the end, I think a certain amount of nerves is inevitable, and it's a well-established fact that the, there is a kind of optimum level of nervousness. The, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a bell-shaped curve, so you don't want to be at the, at the top of the curve is, is obviously too much, but somewhere in, in the middle regions is stimulating and can actually enhance the, the quality of the performance. Yeah, I definitely feel that it gives you a bit of adrenaline, makes you a bit sharper, Precisely. gives you a bit of energy. Yes. Um, I know that you also teach undergraduate students, and I wonder if you have any tips for people who might want to help develop their help their students develop their presentation skills. Well, I think one of the ways to do that is to simply draw attention to these issues to the students. One can it, it depends what the course is and how it's run, also the number of students and so on. But one can always simply draw students' attention to the fact that there, there is an issue with presentations, that everybody has to do, do them at some point in time, and that there is this literature out there, there's a lot of material on, on the internet now as well, that there are trainers, that there are courses, and that people can also uh, watch videos or films in the original language and that there's various ways of, of sorting this out and, and improving one's skills including trial runs and if, if no one else is available simply with friends and family that's also a lot better than nothing. One can also in certain courses allow students to present something briefly themselves. Indeed in my undergraduate course each student has to give a presentation during the semester. But what I sometimes do is also ask a different student to comment on one some theoretical issue, such as indeed voice or body language or concluding or, or, or any of the other standard topics. And it's also quite useful to get one student to specifically to assign a student to make some comments on the presentation and ask some questions. And this is a way of providing an additional opportunity for people to talk a little bit briefly and get some kind of feeling for how it works. And I imagine that really helps them develop their own kind of critical listening skills, something that you can apply if you are sitting in a presentation of someone else and you can say, oh, I really like how they did that or they didn't do that so well, yes. I want to avoid that the next time I'm speaking because I now see what that is like as a someone in the audience. Precisely. It, it gets them thinking in this critical manner and, and gets them to observe one of their classmates and figure out what was done right and what was done wrong. Brian, thank you so much for your time. It was a great pleasure. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Over on THE campus, we've pulled together a spotlight collection full of academic career advice resources. I'll link to it in the notes for this episode. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.